Oftentimes, when we're learning a language in a classroom, it's almost like we're looking at an object. And so I always encourage people to do things where they can hear the language in their community events, on the basketball court, on the lacrosse court. I encourage young people always to learn their language so that they can use it as they're playing because nobody else will understand them. And so that gives them an energy to learn and a reason to learn. That's what we need to build back into our language programs. That's Lorna Wanotsa Williams, Walking in Peace. Dr. Williams is a leading expert on the promotion and restoration of Indigenous languages. She's our guest on this episode of Minobamadzwan, a podcast brought to you by the Thunderbird Partnership Foundation. I'm your host, Sherry Huff. Minobamadzwan is a podcast that aims to seek and share insight about addictions and mental health issues that many in our families and communities deal with every day. Our podcast is a place where we have fearless conversations with some of the leading voices in Indigenous wellness. Menobamadzuan means living the good life in the language of the Anishinaabe. And today's episode is all about language, its connection to our mental, emotional, spiritual, and physical wellness. In fact, just look at the First Nations Mental Wellness Continuum on our website, thunderbirdpf.org, and you'll see that language is considered to be one of the Indigenous social determinants of health. It's considered as vital to our wellness as access to health care, housing, and education. Our guest today is an inspiration in her fearless and determined pursuit of the power of Indigenous languages. For more than 50 years, Dr. Lorna Williams of the Lilhuat First Nation has been an Indigenous educator and language specialist. She's worked from the grassroots to the national levels. She's developed Indigenous language undergraduate and graduate degree programs at the University of Victoria, where she serves as the Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Education. Dr. Williams, welcome to Minobamadzawin. Hi, thank you very much. So let's start off with your own experience with language. I understand you were sent to residential school when you were a girl. Tell me about that experience. I was sent to residential school, yes, at uh, six years old. When I started school, I was monolingual in my own language, Uchelmich. When I went to residential school, there were so many languages spoken. All the staff were in this religious order were mostly French-speaking. So they didn't speak English very well, but we were made to speak English. And there were many different First Nations children you know, who spoke their own languages. And so after returning home at nine, I could no longer speak any language. And I think it was from the trauma but also it was, um, you know, just the confusion as a child. And then coming back to my community, I remember everybody, you know, my brothers would laugh at me because I just, I couldn't communicate. I couldn't speak. And then my next door neighbor began to help me to relearn, she and my mom and the other elders in, you know, who surrounded me in my village. You know, slowly, um, gradually, I started, you know, remembering again, but it was also, I think that it was because of the way they treated me, 
they treated me with such uh, care and kindness and and in our way our people are very observant you know they took signals from me to in, in the way that i needed to be treated and they just were so loving and caring and um, careful about how they were you know bringing me back into our world but at the um I came home with um, hepatitis and a, f a broken foot that was that didn't heal that didn't heal properly, and so I ended up in a hospital uh, near you know not too far from our village, it was sixty miles away, and um, and there I was in a totally English environment, and so I I learned English. And so when I went back home, you know, after four months, the old people used to come and uh, get me if they needed to go to somewhere where they needed English, because they realized I knew both our language and English. And so they would come and pick me up, and I'd go like to the Indian agent with them, or to a lawyer, or to the store, or to a doctor. And I, at that time, you know, I didn't know that I was interpreting. But, you know, they would, uh, both sides would be asking me, you know, like what the other person was saying. I always say that it's those experiences that have really helped me to understand the work that I'm doing now in language. You know, both from a healing perspective, but also just the mechanics of language learning and the way that we use language. And that, and to know that there are two that languages come, you know, from their own world, and we have to we have to create the bridges to cross between those worlds. So that you know, at a young age, I think that that experience really helped me. I love that story, and I can just picture you surrounded by family, you know, aunties, uncles, you know, supporting you, helping you remember and reconnect with your language you know, when you came back home. And, and that and that really does remind me of what we know to be true, that that the support of family and community are so very vital to our to our wellness and 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 you know what we know to be who we are as indigenous people, our identity, our language, our culture, ceremonies, all those things, you know, that that really support our holistic wellness, right? And that's yeah. a beautiful, beautiful image I have in my mind. You're quoted as saying, we know the power of education, its power to destroy, and its power to heal and thrive. We're still here because we continue to practice our powerful traditional forms of learning and teaching to be a good contributing member of community. Can you explain what you meant by that? There's lots of ideas in that, <laughs> in that quote. For... Indigenous people across Turtle Island, but around the world, I've I've met with Indigenous people on every on a, almost every part of this planet now, and a very similar thing happened to them with language because language is so powerful, such a powerful force in a person's life, that when the colonizers take over. One of the things that they do is to destroy language. For example, when the slavers were bringing the Africans on the ships, 
they didn't put the all the 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 Africans in the same ship that's you know who spoke a common language. They divided them, separated them, so they couldn't communicate, and that's one form of control. Mm-hmm. And the and the government here in Canada did the same to us. They didn't put all the children from one community into the same residential school. They divided them into different ones so that they couldn't communicate with one another. And they also divided families. Like they sent some members of the family to one residential school and then others to a different one. So in my family, for example, we went to four different residential schools. And um, and so that was to discourage us, you know, to keep us from communicating with one another. And so language is known to be a powerful force. And, and in our lives, education is the institution that served to disrupt our ability to communicate with one another. Mm-hmm. It disrupted our language use. It disrupted our relationship with the land. It, re- it disrupted our relationship with our families. And in our communities, learning and education, it's a community work. It isn't just the parents or the family. It's the whole community participates and is a part of it. Separating children then from their family and their community and the land was another, was was another, you know, very focused um, strategy to destroy our identity. And so that's why I say that education has the power to, to destroy. Because we sure know that. We sure, uh, if we just look at our lives as indigenous people, we can see how what how education has served to do that. And when you look at education, it's based on a very Euro-Western world. It's value system, the value system of the religious orders. Even though you know, even though Canada says it separates. Uh, church and state, uh, church and state, but it doesn't. It permeates the school system. It's throughout everything, yeah. And education, you know, is confined to to a room, you know, where you close the door. You close the door on your own knowledge, and you close the door on on the existence of the community and of the of the land. And uh, and you learn in a in supposedly in a very abstract way, you know, separating yourself from reality, and so, you know, like and that's so that's another way that it really affects um, our identity, our sources of knowledge, and our ways of learning, and you know, uh, people tend to think that indigenous people didn't have a way of teaching and learning. But we had a very, very solid way of doing that. And so, for example, in the, I use the example of my name. You were wanting to be able to say my name, Wanosa. And I was in our, in our tradition, um, we can have several names in life. And we often have like a name that we use in formal occasions. And Wanosa is that name for me. 
And I was given that name. I must have been maybe 13 or 14 when I got that name. My personality at, you know, from the time I was a child was, was really fiery. And, <laughs> um, and I was very quick to anger. And I think that, you know, going to residential school that probably, you know, encouraged that too. And so I'd react really quickly and often, you know, with, you know, with force and anger and, um, and I did everything in that way. And so they gave me that name. And in the ceremony, the naming ceremony, all the elders uh, in the community talked to me about the person who held that name before me. They talked about her spirit and, um, and, so, and, the, and the qualities of that name. And so when you think about uh, you know, the translation of the name, a woman who walks in peace among people, you would think I would be the last person they would give that name to <laughs> because I wasn't peaceful. Mm -hmm. And, um, but that's, see, that was the teaching spot. Right. They gave me that name because I had to carry that name. I had to learn that name. It was a reminder. And so I had to uh, walk that name. Right. And, and so in my life, and it took me a long, long time to learn, to manage my, my you know, my spirit, my fiery spirit, to, you know, to, um, you know, to find peace. And, um, and so that's, you know, that's, uh, for many of us, that's what happens. We, we are given a name that we have to, in a sense, live up to and to, and to balance out your, your ways in your life. And so I'm, I'm so grateful to, you know, to my family and my community for, uh, for you know, taking the care to do that for me. Absolutely. And, and, and like you said, through education, through the language, that just that's that that one, you know, that one ceremony where you received that name, that carried with it such learning for you, opportunity yeah. to learn for you personally and, and your role in mm -hmm. in your community. Um, you know, and, and what that responsibility, your responsibility was. It's, that's that's a that's a wonderful story. And I I I wanted I wondered if you have a sense today with, with so many so many years of, of, of doing this work, how would you describe the state of Indigenous languages in this country today? Well, in the literature and in the way that people talk, they talk about our languages as being endangered, endangered of going extinct. And I try not to use those terms. Even though, yes, our languages are in a real state but it's really important for us to focus on the strength, you know, it's um, of our of our people and of our languages. Because even in the places where there are so few speakers left, those speakers are powerful, and they're and in they work so hard to keep their languages, you know ongoing and um, and that's what we need to focus on although you know everybody wants us to concentrate and to focus on the endangerment and the vulnerability of our languages 
I always encourage people to to look at the strength, the strength of our people, you know, with all what they did to try to remove our languages from us, it's still there. Right. And even when the language, when there are no more speakers, and right now across this country, there are young people who are learning their language and teaching it and speaking that language to their children. I see that strength, and I see that strength in our, our young people and you know the fluent speakers across this country. They work tirelessly in supporting their young people, and, and they're the ones we need to focus on. Absolutely. I know there are, you know, many, many communities, you know, that are doing just that. They're, you know, they're having language classes, they're, they're doing immersion programs, they are, you know, teaching, teaching uh, the language in schools, you know, often sometimes as early as kindergarten and daycare. Earlier. Earlier even, right from birth. I, I know that, 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 you know, many of, of, of the people who I work with here at Thunderbird tell stories of how important it is that a newborn hears their mother and father speak to them, their family speak to them in the language first, you know, that they connect, they connect with that. But I know that also it's been, I guess, challenging for communities, my own community included, you know, after 30 plus years of language classes and instruction, you know, we're still not there in terms of fluency, not, we're not hearing the language being used in conversation. What are some important steps you think that, that communities could consider, you know, to continue to revitalize and reconnect with those languages? Well, I think that creating spaces where the language is used. And oftentimes when we're learning a language in a classroom, it's almost like we're engaging in looking at an object. So language becomes an object. Instead, we need to activate it. A story that I like to tell that gives a really good illustration of this is a community realized that they were no longer using their language in ceremony and in community, in community events. And in, in the tradition here, and I know that it's a tradition in other indigenous peoples, amongst indigenous peoples, that there, is always, there are always speakers. They call them speakers. They're the people who, in a sense, facilitate. They facilitate ceremony. They facilitate you know, community gatherings, and they keep things going. And a course was organized for speakers, just for speakers. So somebody who would play that role. And so all these young people who, and many of them were people who would have, um, who would have been mentored into that role, you know, in traditional times. So they came and took this course on uh, learning to be speakers. And I went to their community, you know, as the course, you know, progressed. And these young people started to take their role. And I remember sitting in a community event and these young speakers were playing their role as speakers in the community, using their language. And I just really literally saw 
the community's spirit lift up, you know, because they could they were hearing their language, and it was coming from these young people who were doing their job and carrying out the responsibilities of the community. And so I always encourage people to do things like that. You know, like that's not the only thing, but to to do things where they can hear the language in their community events, on the basketball court, you know, on the lacrosse court, anywhere where people are gathering together. And so I encourage young people always to learn their language so that they can use it as they're playing because nobody else will understand them. And so that gives them purpose. It gives them an an energy to learn and a passion to learn and a reason to learn. And so that's what we need to build back into our, into our language programs. We need opportunities, you know, all the time to listen and to hear our language. And so I, I encourage people to have community events like family, like community dinners where they only speak their language and they don't have to, teach it or, you know, or um, have it been taught to them. All they need to be is immersed in a space where they can hear their, hear their language. And the songs that we sing, the stories we tell, need to be a part of, of this because there's so much of our, our sense of identity that, is, that are in our stories and in our songs. And so our, you know, people of all ages need to be able to hear those. And that I would think, I think I know you, how you would answer this, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, people who have absolutely no language, you know, they, they don't, they don't know um, how to say anything in their language. Maybe they don't know anyone who knows their language um, and they want to connect with, with that. Um, you know, what hope is there for them, you know, in trying to reconnect with that and, and those protective factors that language can provide for our wellness and our well-being? Well, through the master's degree in Indigenous languages that I, I put into place at the University of Victoria, I met, you know, I've met so many young people who are so inspiring, but there was this one young man from a community in Ontario, there were no more speakers of his language, none. But he decided he was going to learn his language. And what did he do? He went and found people who spoke his language, a different dialect, but his language. And he learned. And when he was about to get married, he told his wife that she had to learn too. And that the first language and the only language that their children were going to hear was their language. And so he worked, you know, he was so driven to learn and to speak his language. And when his children were born, that was the language they heard. And I met them when he was graduating with his master's degree. And his children were now, um, you know, 10 and 8 and that's the only language they spoke was their language it's really important for us to know and to support young people who are doing who are doing this 
And then what did this community do? There were no speakers. Uh, and again, it was another student from that same community in this master's degree. She went home and she organized a language nest, found a little spot that they could use, a building they could use, and uh, fixed it up. And they invited two sisters, you know, who were in their 70s from another community who spoke their language. And those two sisters would come and live in that community all week and just spend time with these children in this language nest so that the children could hear their language. You know, and Friday would come and then they'd get in their vehicle and drive, you know, 200 miles back to their, back to their own community. And that's how this, the language was regenerated in this community. That's such an inspiring story. It's just, it's amazing. Those stories are all across the country. That's very inspiring. You know, it, it does, it does speak to, we shouldn't give up. We, we can't give up. We have to find a way. We have to look for whatever works, find, find a way to make it happen. Yeah. Do you think that there's enough support for Indigenous languages um, in Canada today? No, because when you think about what's happened to us as, indi as the Indigenous peoples of this country, there are people who still live on what are called reserves. But, you know, throughout our history, the government knew that that's where our strength was. And so they did many things to, re to get us off the reserve. And, um, and so there were many people who were you know, sent to school and then never went home. And, they, and if they went to um, higher education, oftentimes they didn't go home because you know, they, couldn't, they couldn't find a job. Um, or they were incarcerated. Our people have been incarcerated, you know, for all of our history. And that was a way to remove us from our communities. When you think about the 60s scoop, that was happening before the 60s. The children were being removed from their families and placed in non-Indigenous homes. You know, we have people who are scattered around the world. And... Um, with no connection to their communities. When our people got sick, they were sent to, you know, to, um, to their own hospitals. And oftentimes many of them didn't go back home. Many times, you know, because of the Indian Act, um, indigenous women have no rights. And so if they came from a family where they needed to get away, where there was violence, it was the women and children who left and had to leave the community to find, you know, to find their way. So I'm giving you these examples of how focused and organized it was to remove our people from our communities. And what's happened is because we're still under the Indian Act, the federal government, for example, funds only languages for those on reserve. And those are very little. 
you know, that's not very much. But then there's no access to all those people who don't live, who no longer live in their homelands, who still have a right to their language. And, um, and so, you know, that's what's happened uh, to us. And it makes it really, really difficult. And so there's, you know, as I was saying, there is little enough, you know, that goes to the communities. And it's the communities that have to carry the burden of um, reclaiming, revitalization, and maintaining their languages. And those are very different, um, um, they're very different um work that needs to be done in each of those areas but um the but funding tends not to recognize that mm -hmm. and the other thing is that funding that goes to the communities is often um piecemeal it's targeted to a certain thing you know and maybe the uh, the community is trying to work on something else but the money is targeted you know, in a certain direction, and um, and oftentimes it comes so late that they have to spend it by a certain time. And, you know, most of the people in our communities have been working on their languages with nothing. You know, our own people have had to, you know, pretty much support any of the language work that's con that's taking place. Because the funding agencies and the people who give funding have no understanding. They're basing their, they base their knowledge on, you know, the promotion of English and French. And they have no understanding of the challenges of supporting languages that are not based on English and French and Spanish. And who have a, that have a very different sound system a different uh, grammar structure, a different way of being used, and um, and so it's so the funding that that comes is very, very sparse, and very targeted, and not usually targeted in, in the appro most appropriate way, and it's confined to a certain population, and it divides people and. And it, you know, so that people don't have access. So, you know, the the state of our languages is still because of the way that um, the way that uh, Canada views the languages. And so, there's now an Indigenous Languages Act, and you know, I'm not sure yet what they're, you know, how they're going to go about doing this. But at least there's, you know, the, hopefully there's a plan. And with the launch of the Decade of Indigenous Languages this year, uh, you know, we have 10 years. We have to make a 10-year plan. Um, I attended the launch, and um, it was co-convened by um, the Governor General. And she launched the Decade first in her language, Inuktitut. And, you know, that was so significant and heartwarming and um, satisfying, mm -hmm. you know, that that finally in this country, um, a recognition and a place for our languages exists. 
And so I'm so grateful to her for taking that role and for being able to do that. She also spoke, you know, in English and in French, but her language was right up there, and that makes a huge difference. Absolutely. I mentioned off the top the uh, connection between language and our wellness. And I know there is a famous study by um, some researchers by the name of Chandler, Hallett, and Lalonde, um, where they found lower suicide rates in communities in British Columbia specifically, they were looking at, where if more than half of the members could speak their own language, those communities had lower suicide rates. What's been your experience with that connection between wellness and language? You know, there definitely is a connection. And although I think that in so many cases, when people speak their language, you know, like they face even more, they face more racism. It isn't just the speaking of the language. It's, and it's people who have the language who maintain a connection to their traditions to their traditional knowledge and maintain a connection to community, maintain a connection to the land. That's what, that is the, the strength bearing. And so it's not just language by itself. It's, it's that language is a part of the world. And so when people, um, are really secure in their language and their relationships that are important to us with our ancestors, the, our relationships with the people, you know, our community, families, our relationships with the, the land and everything that's on the land, that you have a strength, you know, you have a sense of strength that when you face racism, you face people who put you down because of your because of your your um, your identity. You you can you can stand up to that. You can face that because you know that that's not you. That's not you. That's their version of you. And and but so if you don't have that sense of strength, that's when you begin to believe what they say about you, you know, their degradation of you. And so it's really that sense that we gain from you know, knowing who we are and we're secure in that knowledge. And we're okay, we're good with that knowledge. Then we can face anything. So we like to end our conversations on Minobamadzawin with a question for all our guests. And, and that is, you know, for you looking back over your career in promoting and revitalizing indigenous languages in this, in this country on Turtle Island, at the end of the day, what gives you hope? When I see what communities are doing and to to retain not just their languages, but their sources of knowledge, their relationships to the ancestors and to, you know, and to the land. When I see that and the connections that they have with their stories 
their songs. Um, that's, um, you know, that gives me hope. And I see that across, you know, across the, um, the country and around the world, you know, young, and, and when I see young people, like those young people I, I mentioned, um, who are working with their knowledge keepers, with their language, you know, with their fluent language speakers. And, um, you know, young people are creative, they're innovative, they're passionate, and they have energy. And so when you can tap into that, and um, and they they can, it's amazing what they can dream up and what they can do. And our, you know, and our elders and um, in our communities are so um, giving. And so when they see young people who are wanting to do that, they, they always try to help. And, um, and even though, you know, like in some places, uh, they've learned, uh, you know, how to be mean and nasty and the way they've been treated, but they overcome that. And, and that's what gives me hope when I see people working together, you know, to do what, uh, to keep our languages and our knowledge systems alive. And, you know, one day uh, the world is, and I think they're beginning to realize the way of, of countering what we've done to the earth can be found in our languages and in our ways of knowing. And so I'm grateful to all the people who continue that, that work in their ways. Dr. Lorna Williams, thank you so much for coming on to Minoba Mazawan today. Well, it's been a real honor to, to be here and to be invited to spend some time with you. And thank you for our conversation and for letting me uh, share my experience. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And we hope you enjoyed today's episode of Minoba Mazawan. If you did, I invite you to rate and review us where you listen. It helps to spread the word. And if you haven't already, please subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. For more information on the work of Thunderbird Partnership Foundation, please visit our website at thunderbirdpf.org. And be sure to follow us on social media. You can search for us using at thunderbirdpf on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Lapi Anishik. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, I'm Sherry Huff.